Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, June 7th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris here with you on this episode. We will discuss elbow surgery on the docket for Jacob deGrom. A big reset opportunity for Alec Manoa as the Jays decided not to send him to AAA Buffalo to work through his struggles, but all the way back to Florida to the team's complex league where he can maybe just start from scratch. So we'll dig into that. We'll take a look at some Pitch tempo information, looking at last year versus this year and some players that uh, have struggled or suffered injuries. And, of course, we're going to dig into a few mailbag questions as well. But a ton of ground to cover today. You know, yesterday we learned that Jacob deGrom will need another surgery on his elbow. It is going to be a procedure on his UCL, probably Tommy John surgery. He's had Tommy John surgery before. There are a few variations. There's the internal brace surgery, which can come with a faster timeline for recovery. But as we were looking into different surgeries prior to the show, you can have Amateur both. doctoring. Yeah, amateur doctoring, Googling things. <laughs> Tyler Glass now had the ligament replacement and the brace because if you're getting the ligament replaced, it doesn't seem to add much to your timetable to also oh, have a brace so put you didn't in. Even, you didn't even tell me that. I That's interesting. I was sitting here thinking he got the brace. No, he had he got, the, he, both. Uh, Doctor Keith Meester. So, so that's why he had a normal recovery time, right? Like he wasn't any shorter. It's like twelve to fourteen months. It was the normal window. Yeah. So now they're just throwing them both in there just to to, to have better outcomes, I guess. Right. And I, I was comparing it to having a, a floating shelf on the wall that falls because you only have the anchors on the end. So then you add the third anchor in the middle after the shelf falls, and then hopefully the shelf stays up. I mean, it's. I'm not trying to make a, a joke out of the situation as much as I'm just no. trying to think of a visual like, well, it's already broken. So if you're going to put it back up, put it back up with a little more there. And hopefully, you know, you get a guy back and, and he can pitch for three, four, five more years. And, you know, with DeGrom, given his age, given that he's had Tommy John before, I get it. There's no guarantee. I mean, we've seen guys who've had one Tommy John come back and, and not be the same player they were post-surgery that they were pre-surgery. That That happens more than we realize. DeGrom is already 34 years old, be 35 just in a couple of weeks. And given that he's had one Tommy John before, that 12 to 14 month recovery window might be a little optimistic too, if he does in fact have full Tommy John. So it could be 2025 before we see him again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think it uh, most like, I mean, they, they'll want him back. Uh, you know, next year, and and if you do the fourteen, you and if they're a good team again, uh, why not? You know, why not bring them back, even if it's two or three innings at a time? And uh, you know, that could be a, a real boon to a, a playoff team. You know, hey, we got Jacob Degrom, you know, coming out of the out of the bullpen here. Um, 
the uh, the the success rates on Tommy John surgeries have been updated. I have a 2022 piece on this from Medical News Today, <laughs> and uh, they it's interesting because they say return to play rates in the range of 80 to 95 percent on the first one, and I think probably some of the reason that there's that large gap there between 80 and 95, you know, that's a kind of a large gap for me, is that uh, you might consider somebody like uh, Noah Syndergaard and say, you know, is this success? <laughs> uh, return to I mean, job. Like, so from a yay or nay, it's a yay, but... But I think yeah. different studies have different thresholds. Or like, did they return to the performance level that they were at before or did they not? And so... You know, if you if you live it, leave it at performance level, then maybe it's around eighty percent. If you leave it at, did they come back and pitch? Then it's at ninety five percent for the first Tommy John. That same piece says that success rates. Uh, oh, see, this is uh, this is return to play is eighty to ninety five, but after undergoing Tommy John, about twenty percent do not attain the same level of play. Right, twenty percent do not attain the same level of play. Yeah, then I have a twenty twenty piece. Um, about the second Tommy John, which, you know, there's a, see, then there's, this is like the brace thing, man. TJ revision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think that this is what's happening with, uh, DeGrom because I think TJ revision is sort of like closer to when it first happened, you know? So it's like, oh, something didn't quite take and we're going back in and cleaning it up. As opposed to, oh no, you know, he had it and then, uh, and then, you know, it tore again, you know. Um, I don't know. Here's a second, second TJs are Nathan Eovaldi. That's got to be a pretty good success story. Chris Capuano uh, nice. got 718 innings afterwards. After his second one. Hmm. Yeah. I would I say that's pretty so. successful because he was. For a decent amount of those innings, a solid innings eater for the time. It wasn't like frontline stuff really ever, but he was at least pretty good for a while. Yeah, and then uh, we have Hong Ching Kuo and Joachim Surya uh, and Daniel Hudson as relievers. Um, so there are some. How about... But I want a second Tommy John surgery here. Anyway... Um, it's lower, you know. It has to be. Yeah, it's interesting. This is in year one of a five-year deal. At the time it was signed, people said that's a lot of risk for for a guy that has not thrown a lot of innings over the previous two seasons. Especially twenty twenty was a full season. Sixty-eight innings in twenty twenty was a full season. It, it just jumps off the page as a low total because it it followed three consecutive seasons going over 200 innings for DeGrom, but the big injury issues didn't really start until two years ago. I imagine the Rangers thought a lot about the possibility of this happening, given that it was arm injuries that slowed DeGrom down the last two years. If he comes back, and even it is August of next year, September of next year, finishes 2024, is healthy, goes through a normal offseason, and then 2025 through 2027, the final three years of the deal, if he's 80% of the pitcher he's been up to this point, he's still good enough to be a difference maker 
and the best pitcher in a rotation. That's how good Jacob DeGrom has been on a per-inning basis. So I, I don't want to count anybody out. I mean, we saw Justin Verlander come back from Tommy John and get back to previous levels or very, very close to it by results he got back. Maybe by underlying numbers, you could say, well, the strikeout rate wasn't quite as good, or you could find little nits to pick. But ultimately, we at least have that as a, in an older player with an elite level that they pretty much got back to unexpectedly because of their age. Yeah, age is, uh, is a part of it. Um, and then another part of it, as Dane Perry uh, points out over at CBS, is the distance between surgeries. Uh, like I said, this isn't a revision. This is a full, you know, it took and then it blew again. And uh, 13 years between surgeries for DeGrom, of the 40 or 40 of the more 40 pitchers, um, well, I'm sorry, that's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> that's in the text, Dane. Um, <laughs> I, I think that means uh, of the 40 pitchers that have had it more than once, just five have seen a gap as long as DeGrom's. And those are Hunjin Ryu, who, so we're getting some real-time information back this year, possibly, as Ryu returns. Uh, and then former MLB relievers, uh, John Axford, Kirby Yates, and Todd Coffey. Uh, Matt Bush also had 13 years between Tommy Johns. So uh, that's a less exciting group. Uh, we'll get some information from you, but the relievers, uh, you know, Axford was 38 when he has his, has his and didn't really come back from it afterwards. Kirby Yates has, is he back? Is he he's sort of, He's trying. He's there. He's he's around. Uh, Todd Coffey uh, made it back uh, for... Uh, no, he did not make it back. He was in his early 30s. He did not make it back. Matt Bush has been back, but has not been quite as good. Um, and uh, Kirby Yates has 29 relief appearances since his second. So... Uh, you know, this, I just think this is interesting because there are people, uh, you know, other than like, will we get DeGrom back because he's awesome and we want him back is the question of like, if you're in a keeper league, how great of a stash is, he? you know, uh, you even, uh, texted me today about your auto new team and, uh, uh, and you know, the way that it works in auto new is you cut the guy and then, uh, after a certain time period, uh, he's available at half price. Uh, so if whatever his keeper price was, is DeGrom a great stash at half price? And I have to think it might not be, it might want like a quarter price because you're adding, uh, risk on top of risk when it talk in terms of like, you know, the regular, uh, Tommy John plus the second Tommy John plus the distance between them, plus the age there's a, plus the fact that he was throwing 99 uh, when he comes back, can he throw 99? What will he look at at 95? Will it be the Noah Syndergaard uh, type return? Um, and so I, I'm not sure. I think I would want maybe even a little bit more discount off of it than a half. Yeah, I, I think in, in that scenario, uh, DeGrom will be unfortunately a, a release for me given the machinations of the game. But going from 99.1 before the surgery down to whatever it ends up being 95 96 to lose three or four ticks and still have that much 
that gives you hope. You're like, okay, well, that's still that's pretty too. good. I mean, he was pretty successful at 95 and 96 earlier in his career. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I want to bet against him from a, a what stuff if he and can't throw the 94 mi- like the 92 mile hour slider anymore? Right, know? the secondaries aren't as crisp. Okay, like that that obviously changes things quite a bit too. And you, know, you look at Verlander, like pre-surgery, post-surgery for him, got all the velo back. I would have bet against that for sure at the time. I would have said, okay. Verlander was throwing, but it was his first Tommy John, and he had a long time. There is a relationship also between like when you had your first one and your and your longevity of your career. So something there, and you know, the last thing that is just personally frustrating because you know I had the rankings come out recently. I had a number one. Um, I had Rodone probably too high, and people thought Rasmussen at eighty five was too high. And I just find it really frustrating the type of news, the quality of the news, the you know sort of specificity of the news that comes through from teams is only getting worse and worse over time. You know, uh, we've had the Astros, and we had you know obviously hockey and some other sports are worse where they just sort of circle a whole upper body and say there's an injury in there somewhere, figure it out. Yeah, upper body injury, uh, hockey. Yeah, so I mean it could be worse in other sports, but. Uh, I was trying to read the tea leaves and was like, he threw a bullpen, you know, he's, he's on his way back. You know, he's going to be back in like a couple of weeks. It'll be fine. Uh, Rodone like was back in New York and, you know, said his back felt fine after, after he got a shot in it. I was like, he's going to be back. And people in the comments were like, no dude, like he's not going to be back anytime soon. I'm like, okay, I don't know. You know? Should I just take them off if they're like injured right now? Just take them completely off my rankings. You know, there's like these extremes where I guess I hit one extreme where I was like, you know, I like these guys. I think they're close. I'm going to put them on here uh, versus the other extreme of like, I don't, you know, these guys are injured. So they're not even on my rankings. I don't, they don't even exist to me until they're back. Yeah. The situations for a player's value while that player is unavailable to an injury, it's wildly different just based on the type of league you're in and whether or not the league has IL spots, right? Redraft versus keeper matters, IL spots versus no IL spots, number of teams. All of those things mm-hmm. matter because the quality of the player you can get to replace that player ultimately dictates how much risk you can reasonably take with injuries. If you're playing in a 10-team league on ESPN or Yahoo, my argument would be that you can be about as aggressive as you want. You can have as many of these high-risk injury pitchers. You could have had a, a DeGrom, Sale, Kershaw, all those guys, and taking advantage of the discounts because the quality of those players on the wire when any or all of those guys break is high enough where you're still going to be competitive. And while those guys are healthy, the quality of those innings are undervalued relative to you know the other early round pitchers that are going to be taken. So if you're in a situation like the NFBC where there's no IL spots and it's 15 teams and the waiver wire is pretty crappy every week, or you're playing in a mono league, your risk tolerance is wildly different. I mean, you've played in AL labor for a long time. You lose a starter in AL labor. You're lucky if you have someone else that you want to start in replace of that player. Wish I still had you, Jeffrey Springs. Yeah. Yeah, it's been been rough. I did see a tweet from Derek Rhodes from Baseball Prospectus a week or so ago that the injuries have slowed. Earlier in the year, it looked like injuries as a whole were just off the charts high compared to previous years. Now it's kind of back in line with a normal season, which is good news given all of the the changes and the pitch clock and everything we've been worried about. 
but they're still not out of the woods because the the first burst of of injuries i think was and and i think the way that he was describing it was like in terms of how many people are on the il now it's normal right not in terms of like cumulative and yeah the extent of those injuries and also cumulative like number of placements to now yeah you know, so there was a, a peak early on, and baseball perspectives themselves had a piece that came out that said slower pitchers that were slow according to the clock last year are the ones that are disproportionately being hurt this year. It totally makes sense, and I mean we're seeing it. In, it's not just injuries. Alec Manoa is one of the slowest starters in the league. He was one of the slowest starters in the league last year. He's one of the slowest starters in the league this year, and maybe he's healthy, but he's not the same guy. And the Blue Jays decided it's not AAA Buffalo. It's not AA New Hampshire. I think it's still New Hampshire for them. It's going back to the complex, being around bigger staff, and sort of starting over. And this full reboot, it's happened before with the Blue Jays pitcher. You might remember Ricky Romero years ago. Roy I saw Halliday. a lot of. Yeah, a lot, going way back. Roy Halladay had to do it. Last season, Alec Manoa was one of the slowest starters in the league. He's second slowest in 2023 if you use the baseball savant tempo. I was looking at bases empty, just looking at this year versus last year, trying to figure out, like, okay, what, what happened to the guys who are actually pretty slow? Luis Garcia, the slowest. Tommy John surgery. Tommy Henry hasn't changed speeds much from last year to this year, but he hasn't been up that long, so we'll see what happens with him. Springs, Tommy John surgery. Brandon Woodruff, shoulder strain. Nick Pavetta, actually a little faster, I think, this year than last year, but still slow. Nothing bad's happened to him yet. I mean, he's still Nick Pavetta. Just not good. Right. Chris Bassett went through some early struggles. Corbin Burns, not the same Corbin Burns we've seen in past years. Uh, J.P. Sears kind of looks like the same guy we'd seen before. Kevin Gossman's been thriving, and Jordan Montgomery's skills look the same. That's your top One 10. One name you didn't put on there. Hmm? Otani was slow last year. Otani was slow last year. He hasn't been slow this year, but the question is the fatigue over the course of the season, which is compounded by all the other stuff oh, Shohei Otani sure. does. And how many of these guys that haven't broke down yet are going to break down as we get to that was the other point the that I was going to say is like we had a spike in terms of who's on the IL now. It's normal, but then they're you know from our piece earlier in the season. Um, there's like possible long-term ramifications as that fatigue starts to really uh, ramp up and, and, and sort of build up over time. So I don't know if we're necessarily out of the woods uh, and everyone has their own uh, taste for it. In uh, the rankings, my, my solution was uh, to take the, all the injured guys, uh, Woodruff, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, Mason Miller, uh, Dustin May, Drew Rasmussen, and just put them sort of in between guys I wanted on my roster all the time and the streamers. <laughs> <laughs> so I just put like 80 to 85. That's where I put my injured guys. <laughs> yeah, you made a, a fence with the, the injured players <laughs> to draw a line. <laughs> players I want are in, in this part of the yard and the, the players I don't want are I mean, on the outside I, I of the I think yard. it also makes sense to me, like just uh, it, transactionally in terms of like how I would do it on my team. is like, you know, if I'm looking at Dustin May versus uh chris bassett then i'm gonna be like well you know chris bassett is pitching now when is dustin may gonna pitch again i'm gonna take chris bassett you know but if i'm looking at dustin may versus uh, you know michael waka or alex wood who i would like want to pitch sometimes and not at all other times you know 
Um, you know, then it becomes a question is, do I have space to maybe stash May? Because that's just a streamer. You know, that's not a solution. You know, so that's really that's really the difference I saw in terms of Alec Manoa. Like, you know, the reason that they're sending him to the Florida Complex League is not also not to shame him or to send him all the way down. That is also where their pitch lab is. Right. And they they spent a uh, hundred million dollars, I think, or something on it. Uh, I brought it up in Project Prospect yesterday um that uh they've really spent a bunch of money on that pitching lab so they want him around all the tech and all the data and and not pitching they don't want him in games they want to like turn it back around and say okay let's just like spring training 2.0 the big problem for me is not only is he slow uh not only has he lost movement on his pitches um you know and i think that the lost sweep on his slider is big and, it, and it's been gradual over time so you know all that is really concerning for me the last part is he's just heavier right and i mean can they maybe they can maybe if you're not playing games and not traveling maybe you can spend some time getting lighter but all of these things are intertwined and you know and i think that there was uh perhaps you know part of it was that we were overrating him a little uh you know based on some surface level results before so if you put that all together uh it's a really tough hill for him to climb i do think he can get back to being a useful major league pitcher. But, you know, Ricky Romero was like, there was a reboot on Ricky Romero. Like he wasn't great when he came back, right? I don't think he really came back and had a prolonged run of success. Maybe there were some shorter was like runs. ended up being a reliever later and stuff. I took a look at Stathead. I just took 13 starts and I set the ERA to north of six. And I looked at strikeout rates and walk rates or strikeout totals and walk totals over a similar number of innings just to see like who's done this recently. Blake who's Snell, been who's been this bad for a stretch this long. Blake Snell, May oh, to July 2021. That's a pretty good, like, bounced back and got back to, I mean, stayed fantasy relevant for most of that time, even though people were upset when they were using but him in 2021. Did Blake Snell have higher strikeout rates? Rates were higher for sure. I think of yeah. all the pitchers I looked at, Blake Snell had the most strikeouts while he was bad. I would feel so much better, like if if Manoa had a high strikeout rate and everything else was right. not good. Robbie Ray made this list from late 2019 up into the early part of 2021 when he turned things around. Pretty odd stretch because the 2020 season is in there too. Michael Walker injury with Robbie Ray. Um, he had T- he just had T. He's having T. J. Right now. He's he's, he's hurt now. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Walker had a stretch like this that started in June of 2018 and ended in May of 2019. I think that was probably an injury somewhere in there, a shoulder or something that slowed him down. He did have some injury. He also has a weird pitch mix where he has like a good changeup and you know, is struggling to put things around that. It's a, there are not that many people like him. Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn sort of made sense to me as a like a physical comp, and I, I'm not at all I'm not trying to body shame Alec Manoa or, or anyone at all. I, I think you do you wonder with any pitcher struggling with the clock how much of it is conditioning. This is not a Manoa thing. This isn't Manoa's conditioning is a problem because he's large. There are other pitchers who are struggling who don't have that body type. Conditioning right. is a problem for anyone and everyone. The mm-hmm. the Lance Lynn thing is like, well, okay, Lance Lynn's been the sort of this accumulator, and then he had this late career it's gonna surge where he's been really good again. And now he's he's tailing Otherwise, off. The, like in terms of what they throw, they're not that great at comps because no. Noah is like a has a great slider and and you know not great command. And Lynn is like I have a fastball and I have five other fastballs and I can command them. I'm thinking about it more from like a durability perspective where yeah. you know Manoa comes up and shoulders a pretty and big Lynn workload again. Yeah, it's it's back to that level for him. But 196 and two thirds innings last year. 
for Manoa, and he's, again, seemingly healthy right now in a time when pitchers can't stay healthy. That's a good thing. So all this is to say, yeah, it's possible that he gets back to being at least a good starter. I don't know if we'll ever they see him. They could use him like as again. a league average starter. Like It's not like they have tons of starters. Right, and the projections, I mean, with no changes, with no pause, no sense of like what's really happening, what kinds of adjustments he's going to be making while he's down, the numbers just spit out what should happen based on what he's done so far and what he did in the past. The bat has Manoa at a 439 ERA and a 129 whip for the rest of the season with a very low strikeout rate, easily the lowest strikeout rate of all the projections, right around 7Ks per nine. Uh, what did your rest of season projections have for Manoa, just by comparison? I wonder if the K rate was as low in your system as it was from the bat. 4.5 ERA, 22% rest of season. Okay, so that's actually, the so 22% is actually pretty much the same as ATC zips and uh, the depth charts projection that's out there. The bat is just under 20%, 18.4%. So a pretty big difference, though. If he's striking guys out with those ratios, that works for fantasy. If he's not... That doesn't really work for most mixed leagues. I mean, that's a that's a guy that you stream for favorable matchups because he's on a team that wins a lot. It's in other words, I don't think it's a guy you 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 hold on to. I don't think you can stash him in most redraft leagues. I guess the question would be for keeper, dynasty, auto new, and in, in places where he becomes maybe a full off season, heavily discounted, and you're not playing for right now. Are you taking a chance on the version of Manoa we get after this reboot? <laughs> In my 12-team dynasty where uh, my IL is, uh, uh, what do I have on IL? I have Cody Bellinger, Willie Adamis, Tyler O'Neill, O'Neill Cruz, Reese Hoskins, Jacob DeGrom, Drew Rasmussen, Brandon Woodruff, Edwin Diaz. <laughs> Should I maybe just throw like a Brady singer at Alec Vanoa and just kind of uh, just take it, take a year off? I don't know. It's it's a 12-teamer though. So like I kept, I picked up Brady, uh, JP uh, France and Brady Singer and like, you know, there's, there seemed to be like, okay, guys on the wire. But and I'm and I'm like trying to stay competitive, but I might just have a better season if I just sell. Anyway, it's a it's an idea. It's you know, but Manoa's not you know hasn't been my favorite and isn't like a stuffist that's having a like a hard time commanding or anything. That's that's the type of profile that I would buy in a second. One uh, piece of news: the corresponding move, which is we should have a podcast called the corresponding move. Uh, the uh, Bounden Francis is the guy who's up. Uh, just to give you the model numbers, because he was in AAA, there is something nice about Bounden Francis. A 109 stuff four-seamer, uh, and a 105 stuff slider, and an 85 stuff curveball. So the curveball has poor location numbers, so does the slider. I think that's a little bit of a wait and see, rather than a stash and throw in your lineup right away. Um, and if you're going to watch something, uh, when you're watching the game, watch his breaking ball command. I think if he doesn't have breaking ball command, he's going to get keyholed. Uh, but, uh, there's enough stuff there to make him interesting. He has been serving up a lot of homers. If you look at his numbers at double A and triple A came from the Ooh, Brewers organization. That's what I'm hearing about the, uh, <laughs> the bad, bad breaking ball command. Yeah. I mean, you see, uh, this year. Homers per nine above two. It's only 15 and two-thirds innings. Last year, above two in 98 and a third innings. It's been bad for a while. Yeah. Yep. Year before that, AAA Buffalo 2021, 1.85 homers per nine. K rates, though. It's a pretty pretty sassy K rates. 
yeah, yeah, he could be okay, but I'm I'm very very hesitant given the long issues with uh, the homers. This is um this is tough though, Manoa. I mean, I think uh, we look back at historical comps from more of a statistical perspective because that's what we have easily accessible. The longer you go having pitching plus, the more we might be able to find guys that had a good slider and then didn't and then pressed pause and found a way to get it back or get something else, right? I mean, the the probability of, of fixing your arsenal, that has to vary wildly depending on your age and a bunch of other variables. But we're talking about a guy who's 25 years old. That has to give you just a little glimmer of hope that they can figure something out. Well, uh, funny that you should say that. We do have uh, four years of uh, Stuff Plus data. Um, I'm, even if I take 2020 out because it's short and uh, and, uh, and a terrible year, we all want to forget. Uh, I can do one where I look at uh, 2021 Slider Stuff Plus and 2022 and 2023 and see who lost a ton of Stuff Plus from 2021 to 2022. And who got it back in 23? And we'll just do it on the slider because Alec Manoa has lost 16 points of Stuff Plus on his slider uh, from last year. So just looking at comparables, uh, I've got here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys that jump off the off of the uh, off the page. Alex Wood, for example, his Stuff Plus uh, in 2021, 2021 was a 113 on the slider, and then it was 92 in 2022. And now it's back up to 124. So that's the success story you're looking for. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of other success stories like his. Uh, in terms of getting it back, Jacob deGrom had a 160, a 141, and a 178. I don't know if it's a great comp. I don't think it was ever Maybe. lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it wasn't ever that bad. Uh, how about Freddie Peralta? 119. 102 in 2022, back up to 123. I think that's probably a similar success story. So you've got a success story there. Uh, and uh, then you have the non-success stories, which were Shane McClanahan was at a 130 in his debut season. He's down to 112 and 112. He didn't get it back. Uh, you've got Logan Webb, who had a 121. It's been on the slow side down ever since. Recently, actually, he's he's throwing a, a sweeper. He's throwing Jake Junis's sweeper. Um, and he, I think there might be a chance for him to get that back. And it hasn't affected his overall because it wasn't his best pitch. But Alec Manoa's best pitch is a slider. Joe Musgrove has gone from 139 to 123 to 118. Uh, you say Kikuchi has gone from 117 to 103 to 99 as he's transitioned to more of a cutter-based approach. You Darvish, 141, 128, 123. Drew Rasmussen, 116, 104, 113. He has two sliders that are baked into there. So I don't know how much to learn from that. Uh, but we had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys. I like that these nine guys are all starters that... Um, that you know have had some up and down uh they they seem like a good group of of pitchers to to kind of compare alec manoa to uh of the nine we had success success stories uh if we're going to count to grom uh we had success stories on three four so 50 50 that he gets it back yeah and that's just looking at sliders and again there's so many other ways you could salvage 
your career, but I just think that was a really good pitch that you probably wouldn't give up on. If you, yeah. if you started where he started and used that as long as you did, you wouldn't say, ah, done with that. That's probably not the outcome. There's a lot, though, here of the sort of whiff of injury. Like, wasn't Freddie Peralta's uh, 2022, like, injury-ridden? Shoulder injury, I believe, was last year, yep. And uh, Alex Wood had a real bad back injury last year. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and, and but maybe that's maybe that's what's underlying here with Alec Manoa or or maybe the weight is, uh, you know, a similar to an injury, you know, and that he gets himself physically correct uh, will get him back to the mechanics uh, that can that produce the, the good slider. He needs that good slider. He needs to get the good slider back. That's the big deal. But, it, it, you know, I would say 50-50 chance he does get it back. I mean, he, he's also, is he any younger than most of the guys I just named? Other than Freddie, I think maybe Freddie's about the same age or not much older. Yeah, I mean, you know, but Joe Musgrove's decline, eh, you know, he went from having a really elite one to having a really good one, and he's gotten older, you know? Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like a great comp. It really does put the Blue Jays in a pretty bad spot right now, though, because at any... Any expectation you had for their rotation going into the season was probably something to the effect of Gossman is great. We like him at the top. He's been better than expected so far. Bassett is solid. And Manoa is probably a little better than Bassett, but not as good as Gossman. That was, I think, a pretty consensus. A little thing. better than Kikuchi, who's like a kind of a total wild card from start to start. Yeah. So you had him clearly in their top three. You had. You probably went into the season, even if you didn't think Manoa was going to repeat what he did in his first two seasons, you probably went in thinking he starts their second playoff game. Or mm-hmm. he's at least starting the third game, at worst. He's clearly ahead of Barrios coming off the down year and ahead of Kikuchi and the other options they have. Okay, so you can kind of like take that and say, oh, he's gone. What do we make of Barrios? Can I put the pieces back together this year? This this is sort of similar to me where it's like we had this long track record of this pretty consistent guy, has an awful season in 2022, and now he's kind of pushed his way right back into that mid-three ZRA. He's got a 125 whip right now. That's exactly the number he's got for his career. He looks pretty well fixed. I mean, the home run issues that plagued him a season ago have not been a problem this year, and the K rate's back up a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten the uh, stuff plus on his sinkers, uh, sinker back up to league average. Uh, so he's gotten some of it as a stuff-based uh, thing, but otherwise, uh, his it's it's remarkably similar all the way through. Where he's had league averages fastballs, um, you know, the really good breaking ball uh, and an inconsistent changeup. Um, the weirdest thing about this is, uh, by the model, he's been very similar all the way through and yet, uh, he's had these wild variations around it. And I just think, you know, part of that is like, I think in some ways the model is correct. You know, like he is, uh, he is an above average pitcher. It's just how wild, how much variation even you, uh, one pitcher can have around his true talent. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, look how solid and, and normal he was from from 2017 to 2019. He was just a three eight guy. It was just the same guy. Then he was then he jumped to four and one three two, and you're like, oh, what's going on here? He gets traded first year in Toronto is great. You know that that half in in Minnesota and Toronto it's great, and then he has the worst year of his career. So you know this is a guy who was steady Eddie, and yet he still found this the variation monster maybe. 
Uh, and uh, I think he's sort of back to where he was and not really a Toby as uh, <laughs> as some would have it. Not just a every, you know, you know just a guy, but he is uh, he is not elite. Um, he seems like a good two or three now again. <laughs> I think the Toby needs a little bit of a, an explanation. Uh, so our friend Nick Pollock over at the pitcher list refers to pitchers as Tobys when <laughs> Well, if you if you watch the U.S. version of The Office, Toby Flenderson, HR, Michael Scott's uh, primary <laughs> rival, I guess you'd say, throughout the show, that's Toby. It's the yeah, the boring oatmeal-y sort of starter. That's the conversion. Oatmeal is more that or less nobody what Toby wants is. though. Is like a little bit of an aspect to it. <laughs> Unwanted oatmeal. <laughs> uh, a middling pitcher who has little upside, but a steady enough floor that may earn a spot in your roster for some stability, but is to be avoided against tougher matchups. That guy who goes to work every day and gets the job done, but he's super boring and you don't want to talk to him like ever. You don't even want to acknowledge <laughs> that he works in the same company as everyone else named after the office character of the same name. So there you go. The official explanation from the pitcher list glossary for a Toby. Slightly better than a Toby. Slightly better than a Toby. Let's get to a few other topics here as we uh, we dig in. I saw Austin Hayes reaching some new levels, and it, it's pretty interesting because he's barreling the ball more than ever. He's the second biggest barrel rate improver, depending on how you set the parameters. I was saying players who had a minimum of 200 plate appearances last season and have 100 plate appearances or more this season to sort of filter that list down. So 12.8% career high, strikeout rate's up a little bit, but if you're going to increase your barrel rate that much, a few more strikeouts are not going to break you. It looks like a slight increase in, in opposite field. Uh, opposite field usage is helping a little bit. The BABIP is at a level even with that, where you're kind of like, all right, this isn't quite the final result. This is an improved version of Austin Hayes. So where do we go from here? Is this kind of a, a delayed breakout for a guy that showed some pretty tantalizing tools early in his career, and even in 2021, may have been improving more than we realized because the ball made things very complicated that year. And last year was the supposedly deadened ball. In fact, if you kind of uh, track his ISO along with how the ball has fl- flown and the walls in Baltimore, you could almost uh, you could almost explain half of his uh, slugging percentage uh, just by external factors alone. Um, you know, because his his barrel rate has has uh, fluctuated a little bit, uh, but before this season had been in that sort of you know okay range most of the time. Um, but uh, you know, one thing that I like about this is that we can't find a relationship between uh, barrel rate and uh, and chase rate just one on one. So if you just take all of the people's chase rates and tr- compare it to the barrel rates, there's no real correlation there. But at the same time, if I took you, if I had a player that had established a barrel rate of a certain quality, and then you told me this year he's going to chase less, I'd buy. You know what I mean? And what you find is if you look at the top 10 or top 15 in barrel rate improvers and chase rate improvers, you find a lot of names that are on the same list. You got Austin Hayes, but you got Brandon Marsh, Randy Rosarena, Brian Reynolds, they're all on these lists, you know, on both of these lists. And I don't think that's, you know, uh, I don't think that's a mistake or, or randomness. I think that if you have an established level of hitting the ball hard and then you improve your discipline around that, I think that your ability to hit the ball hard improves. It, it's all because, you know, hitting is spatiotemporal. So like 
you know, you have to get the ball out in front in order to hit for power, which means you have to start earlier. But, and that means that like, sometimes I'm going to chase more to hit for power, right? That's, that's something that we've seen on this show is like, yeah, sometimes the guys who chase a lot are the guys who hit for a lot of power. But if I can just improve that chase rate a little bit, I'm going to hit that ball in the zone more often, given how hard and how early I'm swinging and how hard I'm swinging. You know what I mean? So I think there's like sort of like a given a certain talent level. If you improve your chase rate on top of that, I think it's going to do good uh, things for your batted ball stats uh, as well. And so... You know, his his uh, strikeout rate's up a little bit. Uh, he is, you know, trying to swing for power, but, uh, and he's getting lucky on balls in play. I think a 380 BAPIP is a little bit over his head. Uh, but I believe this power level, and I do think he'll clear 20 homers and five stolen bases and end up this season uh, probably with like a 275, 280 batting average, 25 homers and five stolen bases. Uh, not quite the runs in RBI you'd expect out of a top line outfielder, but probably, you know, sort of 75, 75 type deal. Uh, definitely one of those players where he's not going to make or break your fantasy season, but if you have a couple of these guys in your OF three and four slots, uh, your team is doing a lot better than you expected. So what I find a lot of times, it doesn't matter what type of league you play in. Usually a player like Austin Hayes is a good player to trade for. Because it's not top shelf where the person that drafted him is, is saying, oh, I, I have to hold on for this breakout. It's more like, I'm, I'm comfortable selling here. He's probably not better than what he's shown so far. And you end up getting a guy who exceeds projection for the rest of the season. And maybe part of it, too, is the Orioles lineup is still not better than it's been the last few years, too. So those counting, t- counting stats, on top of just being better because the team is better, get an extra bump from hitting, some of the skills growth from, too. With people on base too. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's a, a 90 run season instead of a 70 or 75 run season, or maybe it's a 90 RBI or 95 RBI season because of things that are just better around him. That's the other part of where I think you can get a little bit of hidden value uh, from a player like this. But you were looking at both the barrel rate and the chase rate and the players who improved in both. Being high up on both of those lists certainly seems like a good combination. So did anybody else pop on both lists? Yeah, as I said, Marsh and Azarena and Brian Reynolds. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything that's really actionable about any of those. And, you know, especially like just you said, like trying to acquire Randy or Azarena right now is going to cost you an arm and a leg. Um, you know, I even think Marsh, uh, you know, might be more expensive than you want it to be, especially with the 390 Babbitt. But he did run really high Babbitts in the minors. And so maybe what you just said about Hayes could be true about Marsh too, because they're going to look at his projections and like Hayes, especially if you're an OBP league, they might say, eh, this is a guy's going to have like a 300 OBP. He's over his head. You know, maybe I'm selling, I'm selling high. Uh, but there could be a real change in approach that we're finding on both these guys in terms of the chase rate improving. And uh, the fact that their bail rate is improving on top of that uh, just says that this is a good change for them. Um, I see this 9.7% swing strike rate for Brandon Marsh and think that there's a chance that that strikeout rate goes down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you get a guy next year, let's just say next year, Brandon Marsh is 26. 26 is a peak year. Let's say next year he has an, a 10% walk rate, a 28% strikeout rate, a 9% barrel rate, and a 20, 25-26% chase rate. He could have an awesome year. Like there is a, especially in that ballpark. 
So, you know, I don't think this is necessary. This is probably near the top of Brandon, Rush, Brandon Rush's best outcomes. Uh, but, uh, you know, there might be another level. And his, his owner might be thinking that he's selling high. I tend to like a lot of the changes that Marsh has done under the hood. I think it's pretty interesting. I've seen Marsh on a few trade blocks for teams that are trying to win right now, saying, you know, I can do a little better than this. I've got him at a low price. He can be moved. I would draw the same conclusion. The other thing about Marsh that's kind of interesting is we know certain guys based on the, the way they hit the ball, either in terms of how hard they hit it or where they hit it or how well they run or any combination of those things can run high BABIPs. We've seen this from Brandon Marsh for his career. He's got a 379 BABIP for his career. BABIP is sort of relative to a player's skills and career norms. So he might be one of those players that possesses enough of those things to carry a higher average than you'd expect, even if the K rate settles in at 26%. I would say the same thing, though, with the O-swing dropping, the swing rates being what they are. I kind of think this is a good time to trade for Marsh. There could be one more very good season there. And he's in that that cluster, kind of like Harrison Bader, where you can find more than one path for him to exceed expectations in any given season. In Marsh's case, think about him running it back with better skills in a healthier Philadelphia lineup next year. Even if nothing gets significantly better, the counting stats will improve. So you'll get a little bit of bonus value just from that. I think he's pretty clearly their best option in center field for the next year or two. So I don't think you have to worry about playing time going down. So I'm yeah. totally on board with Marsh as uh, the kind of player that you could sneak into a deal right now and, and be pretty happy with uh, in the longer run. Bit of a win there too, uh, just really quickly for outs above average. Uh, there was a big debate uh, on these airwaves uh, inspired by some conversations with others about how believable corner outfielders with high outs above average are and like whether or not that, that is actually something that would port over to center. Uh, Marsh is still in the, uh, well, it's top 30 for all fielders and, and, and plus uh, plus defense, but you know, among center fielders, still top five, top 10 uh, type production defensively so that really did port over from uh, where he was before i don't know if any teams are looking at corner outfitters they might stick into uh center but uh jake mccarthy uh is right next to brandon marsh and i wonder if the diamondbacks uh, see themselves as having a surplus of outfielders uh still and if uh, they make a big move uh big sort of surprising move at the uh at or near the deadline. I'd love that they're still hanging around because I have uh, a lot riding on the Diamondbacks. I don't have a big bet on them. I have a lot, uh, just a, a reputation. <laughs> just, a, just personal. personal yes, yeah, so the, the bold the bold <laughs> prediction that the Dodgers would miss the playoffs, narrowly miss the playoffs, and the Diamondbacks would make it. It's still actually possible. Maybe you could get the half of it true, too. You can always you always want to claim those half victories. It looks so much better on June 7th than it did on May 7th. Like Some of the things That's that were true. going really right for the Dodgers early are not going right right now. James Altman has kind of fallen back apart. The pitching injuries have piled up. They've got pitching depth for days, but they, Urias is coming back. Urias is coming back, but this Sunday. this is not quite the same juggernaut we're used to seeing with the Dodgers. Still a great they team. Did, they just keep ticking. Freddie Freeman grand slam. That's just like, of course. Yeah, I know. When I saw that happen, I was like, of course. Uh, if they, I think they were in the middle of going through a graphic. They're like, oh, he has hit this many grand slams and and then grand slam. <laughs> <laughs> they, they even make the announcers look 
they're already good announcers, but they make me look yeah. even better by doing that kind of stuff because that's how, how loaded they are. I think when I still look at the underlying numbers for McCarthy versus Alec Thomas, I still like Alec Thomas more. If I had to bet on one of their futures as a, a big leaguer, I'd still bet on Thomas. So if the Diamondbacks are going to trade one and you're trying to acquire an outfielder, Thomas is the answer. I mean, like, think, uh, I don't know what the Yankees would give up. I mean, we, we can't build a trade in real life, in real time like this too, super easily. But uh, they obviously are thinking about center field and shortstop pretty hard in New York. Um, and Bader is a free agent and hurt again. So uh, other contenders that... Oh, Thomas uh, would be so like, good with the Yankees. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it would, it would oh, McCarthy, oh. be a good, good deal for McCarthy. The Rockies... Uh, I think or keep trying people in center. I don't know if they feel like they're locked down in center. The Reds, like, do they necessarily have a center fielder that they they believe in long term? Maybe, uh, and they have a lot of other types of players, um, but they're not necessarily contenders. Contenders that would could use a center fielder. I don't know if the Red Sox count. Um, I don't know. The Astros are running out okay guys. You know, the Dodgers. I don't. I don't think they'll trade to the Dodgers. <laughs> No, uh, that's not going to happen. And that's not because the Giants you, have been looking for a center fielder for a while, but that's in the division too. Yeah, I still think they'd be more likely to make that trade in season with the Giants than in season with the Dodgers. And, you know, off season, you just trade with whoever you can make the best deal with. But I don't think when you're going toe to toe with the Dodgers of the division, you're trading with the Dodgers and vice versa. I just don't think it works like that. That'd be really unusual. Yeah, I would, I would. I would rate this as about five to ten percent likely. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, the only ones I can come up with are basically the the real contenders that could use a center fielder is like the Yankees and maybe the Rays. But the, the, this is not a Rays type trade. No, I don't think it is. Like the Padres, but they 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 are playing Tatis in center. Like I said, that's what they should the, be yesterday. doing. Makes a lot of sense to uh, to continue down that path. Uh, there was something else that just caught my eye, and now I lost it. Where'd it go? Oh, we had a, a good mailbag question that was kind of on on target with this question about Austin Hayes. This came from Christian. We've seen so many more rookies get significant playing time this year, and with rookies, obviously, come adjustments. A guy like Ezekiel Tavar has been getting much better results lately, but his baseball savant page doesn't back it up. Is there a way we can see a last 30 days of these underlying metrics and maybe we're just not getting a full picture of a rookie just figuring something out, which at a glance, true. If you're getting the full season, you might not see improvement that's happening. So what do you do? Do you use the fan graphs uh, last 30 days tools and then just go over to the stack cast tab? Like what's your method for digging into those numbers on a, on a smaller basis? I mean, use, using the search tool on Savant, ad- admittedly it's, it's not necessarily the most intuitive and uh i myself i feel like i'm pretty good at it i will still go to mike petriello and say (laughs) like you know like uh did i what am i doing wrong on this query but uh yeah i i like the the fangrass one because it's to me it's i don't know it's where i grew up uh in baseball and uh it seems like super intuitive so you just have to go to the stat casting you can put last 30 days in uh i don't know uh what i'll just do a, a hard hit uh, it's interesting to me that Julio Rodriguez is second in hard hit uh, over the last 30 days. That's probably, probably wasn't there before. Uh, Juan Soto is sixth. Uh, you know, Josh Jung is is eighth. Uh, but you can, and Michael Garcia there is 16th. That's interesting. Uh, but you can just, you can play around. You can do the last 14 days too. Um, so, you know, Brent Rooker, 20th. MJ Melendez still hitting the ball hard. So, 
um you know i i think this is it's a good tool it would be nice if you if you want to like sort of compare what you can do is do the uh you know do the april split or uh and then do the may split uh do the data export button and then you have to learn v lookup which uh if anybody wants any v lookup help on excel it is super powerful because basically it's a way for you to just take the april put the may on it uh and then do a do a differential and see who's added the most hard hits since april yeah so a few ways to go about it but i do think the the fan graphs method is probably the easiest most user-friendly method um, and again i think the other tool that I, I keep looking at for year over year changes which isn't necessarily a smaller window is that uh season stack grid page that we were talking about earlier that's how we dug up the austin hayes barrel rate year over year improvement which is always something you're looking for if you have tovar's full season numbers up his last 30 a 4.9 barrel and a 34 percent hard hit now uh, you could just have another you could just have another thing open where you just you know if you're looking at certain players just have the, thir- the last 30 and then pour it over to their, their, their player page and compare it yeah that's a good way to do it too uh, i think with tovar I, I like how patient they've been. I said it on Project Prospect a few weeks ago. I don't I don't always trust the Rockies to do what I would do if I had the keys to making those decisions, and they've really been pretty patient with it. And getting closer to a league average number in May for WRC+, Plus, I, I think that's a pretty big step in the right direction. It's something that doesn't speak that well to Austin Hayes that does speak well to Brandon Marsh and Ezekiel Tovar, which is if you can play uh, you know, above average to elite defense at, at, the, at a at a key spot it'll buy you time you know it'll yeah. buy you a lot of time so you know he's uh he's only 21 years old and uh it doesn't look great right now but he could be an interesting buy in keeper leagues too because even if he has like a 315 obp or a 320 obp that park is going to float that average uh and he you know he could be a sort of 15 15 guy with a 275 average even without a major skills growth and then you add the fact that he's 21 and there could be just a, a big leap forward at some point yep still some tools to get excited about and uh it's pretty clear he's the guy that they want to have at that position for the next half decade so uh, i'm with you if you're not playing for this year you need a shortstop shouldn't take a lot to get him right now relative to what it would have taken in the off season to get him so take advantage of that while you can uh, anything else on your mind you know before we sign off no, no, I've got uh, I've got uh, a big piece coming up tomorrow on the athletic uh, that uh, an A one about whose fault are all the strikeouts and what can baseball do about it. So it, it's actually funny. We were in the process of, of of editing this and writing this, and my editor Emma Span uh, sent me a piece five years ago that was <laughs> by me. <laughs> That was like kind of similar, but I would say uh, we have new data and new tech. And so uh, there are different ways and there's a visual in the piece tomorrow that um, that goes so hand in glove with what I'm trying to talk about. Um, and that's a little bit about the sort of talking about that, that hitting a spatiotemporal, that whole bit. Um that is key to understanding the strikeout uh, increase, I think. And so um, I hope people like it. It's, cool. uh, it's uh, got uh, stuff going back from 2015 
to this year's uh, rule changes and how all of these these sort of long term and short term trends fit together. To we just keep we just keep breaking the strikeout rate records every year. Every year we just keep breaking them. You know, just over and over again. So uh, I don't know if people think it's an existential problem or not. People don't care. People care. Uh, but it is interesting when baseball just keeps marching in one direction and uh, you have to kind of think about what they could do about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure since <laughs> logically you'd want to see over a few years how much the pitch clock wreaks havoc on major league pitching before you change anything else, uh, they won't change anything too soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Could be this off season. Oh, and uh, yeah. we're moving the mound back. Yeah, that's right. That's oh, okay. Right. Sounds good. <laughs> Add more to the absolute chaos that is trying to unpack yeah, what's mess happening. up stuff plus again. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to checking out that piece. Theathletic.com slash rates and barrels gets you a subscription for $2 a month for the first year if you don't have that already. So be sure to pick that up. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We got a 3 0 show coming out in the Athletic Baseball Show feed on Thursday. Rates and Barrels is back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>